Of course, technology and agriculture can help reduce production costs and improve efficiencies, but it can also open up new possibilities for quality that goes way beyond the average consumer's expectations. Our economic picture is, is to be able to capitalize on growing a better product and supplying a better product to the consumer, but also being able to kind of fix our labor costs and control those to a certain point. That's Casey Call, co-founder of Zordi, which I first thought was a robotics company focused on building robots for greenhouse agriculture. Well, it turns out they are that and more, using their own proprietary technology to build and operate their own greenhouse farms. Getting people access to this produce is kind of the key, right? When people start having our strawberries, they're like, oh, well, we get it now, right? And so getting more and more of this infrastructure built, getting more and more access to these things in stores, I think is the path that we're on. Their focus on quality, the customer experience, and the latest in technology really brings out some thought-provoking insights into the path forward. We're gonna have to seek technology solutions. We're gonna have to seek new ways of planting, harvesting, processing, and selling food to people if we wanna maintain a good quality of life. Casey Call of Zordi on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerd. Thanks so much for joining me. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Well, I've got another great episode for you here today, but before we dive into that, I want to take just a moment to thank our quarterly presenting sponsor, which this quarter is Swap Maps. When you know more, you grow more. Swap Maps Variable Rate Technology helps you understand the why of field variability and how to better manage it. Understanding soils is the core of a successful fertility program, and Swap Maps allows you to map, measure, and better manage your soils using data that accurately delineates areas with similar fertilizer response characteristics. Turn your data into actionable value with Swap Maps. They're your trusted variable rate provider on millions of acres with a 98% retention rate. Swap Maps, they do variable rate right. Visit SwapMaps.com to book a consultation or to learn more. That's SwapMaps.com. Whether you're a farmer, agronomist, consultant, anyone interested in variable rate technology, definitely go talk to the folks over there at SwapMaps. I've known Corey Wilness, one of the founders, and been very familiar with the SwapMaps team for quite a while now, ever since uh, Corey was a guest back on episode 211 of this podcast. And I'm also proud to host their SWAT Agronomy podcast. So thank you again to SwapMaps for supporting Ag Innovation and the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, back to today's featured conversation here with Casey Call of Zordi. Casey was born and raised on a fourth-generation family-owned vegetable and grain farm in New York State. After completing his degree in ag science at Cornell, he moved across the country to become the agronomist for Grimway Farms, Cal Organic, in the Central Valley of California. A lot of you might be familiar with Grimway Farms, one of the top two uh, carrot producers in the nation, probably in the world, I would imagine. Uh, earning his MBA on nights and weekends, he eventually went to work at ag management software company Granular, which was later acquired by DuPont, now Corteva. Uh, at that time, he moved on to become the head grower for Plenty, an indoor vertical 
farming company. And all these experiences led him to become the co-founder of Zordi, where he works alongside founder and CEO Dr. Gil Wu Lee to more fully automate fruit and vegetable production in greenhouses. And as you're about to hear, Zordi acquires varieties from around the world, such as Korean and Japanese strawberries, to grow and manage them with a fleet of harvesting and scouting robots. They then market and sell those premium varieties through grocery store channels. Uh, this is is a massive project that they've taken on and, and really they've made significant progress in a short time. I'm, I'm impressed with how fast they're moving with all this. Uh, I really also respect Casey's perspective as one of the few people I can think of with firsthand growing experience on family farms, corporate farms, vertical farms, and greenhouse production systems. So it's interesting to see the ways he's combining this unique skill set. I'm going to drop into the conversation here where he's articulating how automation can lead to not just labor savings, but also a chance to unlock new levels of quality and a better customer experience. When you turn on automation and you have the ability to, every single time that computer vision system is going to make a decision, you know it's going to make the same decision. That's empowering in that you can start to say, okay, well, we're going to actually grow more selective varieties that require a little bit more care, but we can be guaranteed that we're going to capture all of their reward or yield because that repeated process of robotic harvesting isn't going to lose anything in that final step. We don't even touch the berry itself. So softness, which is often a characteristic that comes with some of these better tasting varieties of strawberries, they're softer, they're sweeter, they have more acidity, there's more complexity to them. They're not as hardy Whereas a lot of the field varieties are grown for hardiness, such that they'll ship across the U.S. and then sit on a uh, display case and you'll go up. Because the first thing you do as a customer, right, is you pick through and you take the best ones and any ones that have any bruising or any, you don't really want those. So in our process, we're able to go in and say, we're going to get our speck of berry every single time. So yeah, using that empowerment, say, yeah, we're going to grow higher, more selective varieties that require a little bit more individual care. And if our traditional model had some of those being bruised or uncaptured, because of our automation system, because of the consistency of that, you can send it out there every day. It'll wait a day um, if it's not quite right, right? And you know that, that decision-making in a, in a human-based labor model is very difficult. And and for those who haven't seen pictures or videos like I have, you know, what we're talking about here is essentially like a, a rover that goes through the rows of the greenhouse and analyzes each berry and essentially kind of clips the stem just above the berry and, and puts it directly into a package. Is that, does that sum it up or am I missing a big yeah, element? No, there? you're right. There's another piece to it too, which is our monitoring fleet kind of precedes uh, that harvesting and packing robot. So that the, the one you just described is the harvest and pack. So oftentimes in strawberry growing operations that harvest and that pack step are split. So you have people that are just getting them off the plant, getting them into boxes, then we'll do some sorting and then put them into the final package that you receive as a consumer. Because, again, the robotics is going out there making very consistent decisions and it's not ruining the fruit because we're cutting the stem. It's going directly from that decision making point into the final packaging. So you're saving labor and time in that. The prequel to all of that is that there's a monitoring robot that does the exact same path in the greenhouse, crawls every single row. Um, and it takes images and our computer science team and vision team, along with our grow and production teams, we've done annotation, we've done 
you know, look for this, you know, these are the indicators, things like that. And so that whole program we call Auto Grower gives us information and feedback about what's happening at a plant by plant basis across the greenhouse. You know, for example, right, we just started getting into flowering. And in a normal greenhouse, you have to walk those rows and you have to create a mental model of, okay, so where are we at with flower emergence? When do I introduce my bees, right? I don't want to introduce too early. I don't want to have them starve. And I don't want to go too late and have pollination issues. How many bees do I incorporate? Because if I put too many, they'll have competition over the flowers and we'll get issues. So you're trying to answer that question as a grower, right? Well, you know, in our program, we have pictures that are being taken of every single plant across the greenhouse. And then those images are being crawled for flowers. So I can get an exact flower count by row, by bay. And so I know exactly to a quantifiable number what percent emergence I have across my greenhouse. Very easy to make a, a straight line decision once you have some of those metrics, right? Um, that's just one example of, of kind of what happens there. But yeah, the, the monitoring robot is is charged with kind of helping us make better growing decisions. And then obviously that that harvesting and packing robot is coming in to execute that task. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, uh, let, let's talk about kind of the economics of this a little bit. I know, you know, you have experience working with leafy greens. I would imagine that uh, the economics might work a little bit better with like a high quality strawberry that someone's really willing to pay a premium for rather than, you know, a lettuce leaf or something. Um, is that kind of how the model sort of all works? You know, the thing um, about lettuce and about leafy greens is it's such a high turnover crop. And that really helps your economic outlook, right, of your production. You, you can turn around a crop in 18 days, 20 days. You know, some guys, if you're putting in extra energy, you know, like plenty, for example, I mean, they're right on the cutting edge, right? They've got everything sorted out as far as plant science and they're putting in the right. So they're accelerating that process, right? And so, if, you know, every day, essentially, if you plan correctly, you've got harvest coming off, right? And you're, and you're putting it out the door and you're able to make money. And let's say you have a catastrophe, right? You have the worst day of your growing life. You know, you lose your whole crop. You're 20 days away from being back in business, right? Strawberries, not the case. You've got at least 70 to 90 days in the propagation process, whether you're doing that yourself or you're buying those plants, and then you introduce them in your greenhouse, you still have six weeks before you have flowers. Depends on you know the condition they come in and the conditions you're supplying. But at any rate, it's a much longer term crop, right? You know, we're gonna carry these berries that are fruiting now into the spring, you know, into June. And so that one plant is gonna be supplying our our output from any single site, right? So really big difference just to start out in that like the lettuce is just such a fast cycle, right? And the strawberries are much longer. That being said, yeah, I mean, the price per pound that we're able to, to charge for not premium grown, but in a controlled environment, you know, they don't have some of the deformities or issues that may come up in the field grown berries, right? If they're resting on the ground as opposed to hanging in free space, they look perfect. Like in a gutter situation in a greenhouse, they're hanging down, right? They look great. They're forming completely. You know, if they're grown on the ground or outdoors, there may be deformities from the ground or any, you know, issues with rain or things like that. So you end up with a higher quality product. And, you know, our economic picture is, is to be able to capitalize on growing a better product and supplying a better product to the consumer, but also being able to kind of fix our labor costs and control those to a certain point. Um, and that really helps our economic outlook. Yeah. 
Yeah, another company I've been really intrigued by, although they haven't been on the show. I, I have reached out to them. I have not got them on the show yet, but is uh, Oishi? I, is, I don't know if that, yeah, if that's how you pronounce okay. it. Where they, they produce that super premium strawberry that you might see oh, in like Whole Foods. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, uh, I mean, is this a similar model to them with kind of the robotics added to it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not a terrible comparison. We certainly have been compared to them before. The big difference between Oishi and Zordi, uh, actually, we're sourcing our berries from a similar part of the world, right? Our, our berries, the, the varieties that we grow are from Korea and Japan. And the omakase berry is from Japan. Reason being for that is, is that the culture uh, surrounding berries and other fruit in that part of the world is, is in a different place than it is in the U.S. They really um, have been indexing on these alpine berries, their sweetness, their acidity, um, their shape and flavor. Um, it's much more of, a, you know, I've used this example in the past. It's not the best example, but in the U.S. we go like wine tasting. You know, you have your favorite varietal of wine. There are experiences in Japan and Korea. You go out to a strawberry farm and you taste 15 different kinds of berries and you have your favorite varietal, right? And you go to the grocery store, they have those varietals present pretty much everywhere. So we're growing very similar genetics, if you will. Uh, the, the huge difference, and I, I really can't downplay this enough, is, is they're completely indoors and we're in greenhouses. And there's a reason for that. Uh, you know, given my history um, and the, the things that I've been working on throughout my career, economically, I see greenhouses as a, as a faster route to enabling some of this production near city centers. The CapEx part of it is a whole different world, right? Like, Greenhouses have the advantage of using the sun, right? And in an indoor farm, you have to supply every bit of energy that goes into that plant. So that's that's the huge difference, right? So, you know, there's advantages to growing completely indoors, um, and we can debate those. But I think that there are also huge advantages economically, time-wise, capex-wise, uh, impact-wise. And certainly, we can look at each situation and say, how do we fill in these 12 months of production in a greenhouse? Because you're going to have some effect by the seasons that you don't get in a vertical farm, right? But we can make decisions about variety selection, about timing of crop, about what expectation we're setting for the consumer at certain times of the year. And if you look at those factors and you pencil out a lot of that, you know, the amount of money that you need to invest to build X amount of square feet for output of a vertical farm compared to a greenhouse or a hoop house. It's two different orders of magnitude. That makes a lot of sense. And I mean, you are uniquely positioned to speak to that topic, having started in outdoor farming, gone to vertical farming, and now gone to greenhouse farming. I mean, the, the vision for vertical, like, I, I don't want to, um, I would hate for people to come away from listening to me talk and say, you know, vertical agriculture is not a thing worth pursuing because it can certainly have a very solid footing and a place in our food system, right? And it's, it's worth pursuing these types of things because there are parts of the world that you cannot have a greenhouse that is going to be viable for some of these crops. It just won't work. But there are also huge swaths of the world, you know, a very large percentage of the world where greenhouses work great, right? And they do adjust that environment and they do help us achieve a better food system in those areas, a more stable food system, a more secure food system oftentimes higher quality products, more sustainable. So there are all these advantages and it's like this kind of like stepping stone thing, right? Like if today we're getting all of our berries from Mexico and everything is field-based and 
we could take one step in a direction towards a sustainable future. You know, hoop houses and greenhouses are right on that map. And maybe, you know, two or three steps down that path is vertical farms. And that's great. But, you know, where we are today, there's a lot of opportunity out there for sunlight-driven, controlled environment agriculture. Yeah, that's cool. And and this may be a stupid question, so forgive me, but I don't want to just assume I know the answer. Uh, in a place like New York, in a greenhouse, can you grow strawberries, you know, equally year-round? Yeah. So um, the varieties that we grow, the ones that we brought over from Korea and Japan, are short-day strawberries. So they're winter berries. And so we're going into season right now. And with some heat, and a little bit of light, not a whole lot of light, but a little bit of heat, you can bring those through the winter and have them fruit. That's their season. You're basically just tricking them into thinking that it's early spring all winter in that greenhouse. And with the short daylight hours and the cold temperatures, it's actually a great place to produce high quality fruit. The colder night temperatures are really what drives the bricks production. And those short days are, are producing flowers. Sure. That makes sense. Now, what about kind of the, the marketing of the products itself? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of difficult components here. You've, you've got the robotics, you've got the growing, but you've also got like, who's going to buy these things once, once they're ready to go? Uh, how was that process for you all? We've been on shelf for two years. So the first year, we just wanted to see if anybody was interested. We flew these berries in and we put them in test samples and sent them out to shelves and high, high-end retailers in New York City. And we couldn't keep them on the shelf. People loved them. So we knew we had some, we were onto something, but let's take the next step and actually get a larger quantity. So if they're on the shelf every week um, at some volume, do they still move at the same pace? We had a three-day buyback program last year um, with a number of our retailers where you know, after three days, if you don't sell it, we'll buy it back from you. We weren't buying anything back. I think the big thing is, I've talked about this with friends and stuff, and people agree with me somewhat, but it's like the gift and the curse. In every grocery store in the US right now, there's Driscoll strawberries. First of all, that's incredible that they're able to do that. Um, so kudos to Driscoll's. That's amazing. But you know, also because of that, they look a certain way. The quality of them is at a certain standard. I don't think anybody would fight me on that. And it's almost to the case where like you buy a pack of strawberries, you're like, oh, well, hopefully I'll get 90% of these. You know, some of them I'll probably throw out in a couple of days, whatever. And then there's that time of year when you walk into the grocery store and there are strawberries that are like, they look different, right? They're like better, they're caught, the cost comes down a little bit, right? That's that seasonal supply. They're coming into season. They look really good, right? They're better formed. And basically like at Zordi, because we have the controlled environment, our berries, we're going to keep in that state all the time. We're going to give you perfect berries, perfect, you know, whatever in the eye of the beholder, but when, when you buy from us, it's a single layer package, right? So it's a, you see every single berry. You, you can pick it up, you can look at all the different sides and all of them look the same. And you're going to be able to eat every single one of those. And that, honestly, I think you have that type of packaging right next to a box of Driscoll's. And for a consumer making a decision, it depends, you know, depends on what you want. If you're going to do something else with your strawberries or bake with them or whatever you're doing. But if you just want to snack on those things and you look at those two packages, one is more appealing. And we saw a lot of velocity from just that, I think, just that basic offset of, of how the product is presented. And then obviously, you know, our flavor, our sugar and our acidity Average bricks for uh, Albion grown in Mexico or, you know, a, a traditional Driscoll's berry or I shouldn't say Driscoll's berry, a traditional berry in the U.S. is six to nine bricks somewhere in there, right? We're averaging 13 to 16, right? So double 
or almost triple in some instances. And also the acidity changes. You have different acidity numbers with ours. And so, but when you're eating that, it's a totally different experience. Some of our varieties last year, we got peach flavor, grape flavor, and we got a lot of feedback on that. A lot of different people kind of telling us, but yeah, when you're, when you're growing these varieties, it, that's the wholesale change is, is that when you eat that, it's a different experience than eating a traditional berry because there's two or three times as much sugar, there's two or three times as much as the city. And so that the flavor compounds that you have are very different. And is that why it was important for you all to, to kind of vertically integrate so that you could have that really close connection all the way through? Yeah, essentially like the, the very talented engineers at Zordi, I mean, they can build robots. They're very fast at making robots. They can make all kinds of robots. And let's say we made 10 robots, right? And, and we're ready. We send them out into the world to 10 different greenhouses. Well, those 10 different greenhouses have 10 different growers. They have 10 different styles. You know, they may not all have 10 different varieties. Mostly they probably grow a similar variety, but they may plant at a different time. They may have different gutter setups. They may have different spacing between those gutters. They may, you know, one guy really doesn't like to trim. Another guy likes to keep the canopy, the under canopy clean, you know. And so there's decisions that make it easier for the automation to work reliably, right? And when you vertically integrate, we're able to just take command of some of those decisions. And it really accelerates the pace of development for engineering. If they can count on us, hey, we're going to make this type of, this is how we're going to orient our plant. You can count on that. Every location you go to, it's going to be similar, right? Yeah, it's a huge accelerator on the technology development. That's really cool. And um, so obviously strawberries is the focus right now is what's the growth model look like for the company? Is it, they, let's just keep, um, you know, doing more locations. Is it expanding to other crops? Is it starting to be comfortable with selling the technology or renting the technology? What's kind of the business model long-term look like? Yeah. So we certainly, you know, right now we're at the stage where we have, like I mentioned, we've acquired those two farms, right? Both of those, we retrofitted um, existing greenhouses. And then at the second farm in New Jersey, we actually built our first new greenfield project. And so we built that. It's a, it's a, we call it a long house. It's a, it's a hundred meters long, kind of looks like a hoop house and has, you know, a couple points of automation in there as far as vents and things like that. But, you know, we know every cent that went into that project because we owned it and now we're operating it um, and we're going to get production out of it this year. And that is meant to be kind of our unit economic model for a production unit, right? And if we're able to achieve our goals with that, it's a very attractive um, economic model for investors. And so we'd be interested in building more of those. Our CTO, uh, Ryan, was formerly at Root AI, if you're familiar. They were bought by App Harvest a while ago. And then obviously the whole App Harvest situation went down. We have acquired the IP for harvesting tomatoes, it's cherry tomatoes. So that's very likely something we'll move into um, with our second crop. So we're going to do a demo here um, of cherry tomatoes by the end of the year. So yeah, it's, it's two things. It's we want to build more of these greenhouses, um, knowing what the economics look like. Uh, we're looking at all of the places across the United States that really fit well with our current strawberry crop and the environmental conditions. So where, how broadly can we bring these higher quality strawberries to different cities? And then, yeah, expanding into different crops. Uh, we think that 
Starting with strawberries was an advantageous thing to do in that it is such a long-term crop. It requires a lot of care. The, the movements associated with it, the decision-making associated with it, lends itself to other crops very well, right? So if you start, let's, cherry tomatoes is a great example, peppers, cucumbers, things like that, right? Very similar and analogous, same thing. You're talking about rows, we're talking about picking and removing, we're talking about monitoring the crop. So all of those things, yeah, are things we want to take out in the future. And are there are there premium markets for those things? I know, like there are premium markets for strawberries? Yeah. Uh, you know, basically, if you look at the premium market in the U.S., you kind of start with organic and you say, OK, what what percentage of people are buying organic? So certainly, you know, you can you can draw your conclusions off of that. We're seeing, you know, recently in in consumer trends more towards snacking, higher quality snacking vegetables. You've seen this with the mini cucumbers. Um, in your grocery store. Now there are snacking peppers that people are starting to catch on to, things like that. So I think it's it's both, right? It's it's a couple of things. It's that Japanese and Korean strawberries weren't available in the US. And, you know, Oishi went on that journey. We've we've been going on and the, the demand has been absolutely insane. I know it's it's pretty easy to find more and more of those examples across the world where there's these really high quality goods. And, you know, some people listening here may have been able to travel, you know, you go to Italy or you go to Greece or whatever, and you're like, oh, the produce is amazing. This tastes great. Like, what's the different? What's going on here? And it's again, it's this, Tim, you and I have talked about this before, but this supply driven system, right, that we have where, you know, what can make it to your shelf by the time it is, it's still appetizing looking and, and you'll eat it. And in the United States, you know, we have this mass production system that does that. But it doesn't really result in a lot of high flavor, you know, and that's why, you know, just as an example, that's what people go to farmer's markets, right? They go to the farmer's market, oh, I want this other type of tomato or this other thing. And so there's there's so many examples of, like, if I had an heirloom tomato up here from a farmer's market and I had a beefsteak from a grocery store, if you present those two things to consumers side by side, people start to make different decisions, right? And I think where we're at with all of this is we're moving towards that, right? Where we have to provide some of these goods uh, for the consumer to even know that they're available or that they're options. But yeah, there's there's a lot of indicators out there. There's a lot of trends out there to say that there's there's a good movement towards higher quality vegetables grown closer to where they're consumed. Yeah, and when we're talking about kind of premium markets, you mentioned organic. Are you all going to be organic, or are you organic? <laughs> uh, we are not organic today. Certainly don't have any like near-term plans to become organic. You know, the EU passed some interesting legislation a number of years, or I guess it's a number of year, years ago now, but, you know, our, our nutrients are synthetic, right? So we're using calcium nitrate or magnesium sulfate. And so that's our first thing where, where we're getting our nutrition. We do use beneficials throughout the growing season, and we really try to spray as little as possible. You think about it, once you start to get flowers coming out, any chemical that touches that flower is going to impede my perfect fruit production, right? So we're very incentivized to not spray at all. But we do use, you know, synthetic fertilizers. It would be great to figure out the organic thing. It just, it's so complex for the nutrition part, especially in a hydroponic kind of container type growing that certainly if, if the technology comes along and there's better methodologies in the future, it's not something that we would not do. We would certainly love to do it, but it's just not what we're focused on right now. I'm amazed at how quickly you guys have been able to kind of get this off the ground. I mean, it's only been a couple of years, right? 
it's been busy. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, yeah, this is a lot, uh, a lot going on in, in a very short period of time. You know, from your experience, what has been the what has been the biggest challenge to kind of keep that pace? Uh, has, has there been a bottle, an unexpected bottleneck anywhere? Well, we had to do, we had to figure out what we were going to do as far as a product, right? And so you can build robots, no problem. That any day of the week you can order metal parts and screw them together. But the genetics, the genetics from Japan and Korea, that took time. Um, so we had to develop relationships with breeders there. And my uh, co-founder Gilwoo Lee is from Korea, so that kind of helped us with a shoe in there. But you know, a lot of uh, a lot of work by her, uh, a lot of translation and deal making. And then I had to get a license from the USDA to import those varieties, quarantine them, and hold them. And so we started with a hundred plants. So you have to go from a hundred plants to now we're at thirty thousand. Right. So you've got to do increases um, every year. And then, you know, ours are short day strawberries. Right. So they're only available when we can get the conditions right, when the, when it's colder and the days are getting shorter and we can induce that flowering state. Otherwise, it's just a vegetative plant. It'll just grow leaves and stuff like that. So, yeah, working on that schedule is challenging while also having an engineering team that needs harvest opportunities to get better every day, right? The only way it's going to get better is if it's out there doing its thing or if we can if we can test and try. And so we've had a lot of creative solutions to that. We've we've, you know, gone over to Korea and worked directly with those farms with our robots. We've created fake berry situations uh, as realistic as we can with plastic things like that. And we've also done everything in our power on the grow side to uh, accelerate that fruiting timing uh, and trend. And for example, we'll put uh, our strawberry tray plants when they're done with their propagation phase into a freezer for 10 to 14 days, right? To really ensure that they think it's winter. And then we take them out, they're in accelerated state. We actually just got approved again to do more importing of varieties. And we're going to import some everbearings to see if we can fill in some of the uh, time on the calendar that the uh, short days don't produce the quality that we want, right? So yeah, all of those have been uh, interesting challenges to work through. Very cool. Well, I love this. I, you know, for a number of reasons, uh, I, I'm very interested in kind of like quality driven agricultural ventures. Like how, how can we make something that's really differentiated in terms of quality? Um, I had a chance and it's been a long time, it's been 20 years now, but I had a chance to go to Japan and see them mark like auction off individual cantaloupes. You know, it's just amazing. And uh, I don't know, I'm just fascinated by that, that concept. So I think it's really cool what you're doing. It's a mindset difference, right? Where like a lot of industrialized agriculture in the United States, like we are aimed at how much yield we can get how is it going to hold up through our processing process? And like, how is it going to look out the other end? And throughout all of that, I didn't mention how it tastes, right? And so in other parts of the world, we don't need all of this mass production, but let's make the best version that we can of the thing. And in this case, that's, that's what we think we found. That's cool. And where are people going to be able to buy this? What stores do we know yet? Yeah, Hmart um, is a big retailer for us. Wegmans is another. Um, Butterfields, if you're uh, familiar with uh, New York City, and uh, you know, we hope to work with others. Um, you know, we're well, talking about my usual question is like, you know, what does this mean for the future of agriculture? But I want to take a different spin on it for you, is which is you know, certainly controlled environment ag has gone through a transition in recent years, you know, maybe 
uh, a dip in the hype cycle, which I view as a good thing, sort of a recalibration of expectations and, and, and maybe where things are going forward. Obviously, because of the position you're in, you're still very bullish on kind of controlled environment ag in the future. How would you describe this current time and, and, and any comments you might have about where things are headed? I think about this a lot. Um, you know, I, I think that hopefully this isn't too abstract of an example for you. But for example, you know, my family's been farming for over 100 years. And when my grandfather was harvesting wheat, he didn't use a combine. And then when my dad's harvesting wheat, he does, right? And it doesn't make him any less of a farmer. Actually, it makes him more efficient and uh, able to produce at a higher rate, a higher quality, all these things. And I kind of view where we're at in production ag as, you know, it's just really kind of a continuum. Like we, we're, we're going to continue to to try these things and some things will work and some things won't. But we have to continue to try to improve our food systems. I think, you know, more and more these days, people are aware of the industrialized food system. The fact that we have so many things that come from such a concentrated area and they take up so many food miles and they go here and there. And the model where you have every vegetable available to you every day of the year, it's incredible as far as an abundance thing. But it's also, um, I think we have to start looking at it more critically about what do people actually want to eat and when do they want to eat it and, and at what quality can we provide them? And as climate change you know, discussions heat up and as labor dynamic discussions heat up and the, you know, the cost of labor per hour, all of these things come up and up. We're going to have to seek technology solutions. We're going to have to seek new ways of planting, harvesting, processing, and selling food to people if we want to maintain a good quality of life. And yeah, I think that there's just so many decisions all along that path that technology can benefit and, and can really change the game on. So I don't know if I answered your question very well, but I started talking. Well, no, I, I think, yeah, you know, my takeaway from from that is that we have to keep trying, right? Some things are going to work and some things are not going to work. Nobody's going to say our food system is perfect. So obviously we, we need to keep working on it. No, and I think, you know, with vertical farms, I think nobody really knew what the ceiling was. We're like, oh, well, there's this idea where if we control all the conditions, we can get whatever yield we want. And we're just learning more about the realities of that as it comes to bear, right? And we're looking at how, what does that mean economically? And again, like, you know, there's certain situations where that makes a whole lot of sense because you can't put a greenhouse in Abu Dhabi and have it produce the same way it does in New York. You know, it's a different place. So we have to be more holistic about how we think about how we're going to produce from, from a food ecosystem standpoint. And I think that we're still in the early innings for controlled environmental ag in the United States. You know, we're like less than 1%. Uh, if you look at, you know, some of the food systems in Europe, they're way beyond us. But the more and more that food security comes into challenge, you see it every year where there's a breakout of listeria or, you know, there's a, there's a drought in Southern California. So we don't have, you know, prices for food go up. You know, the incidence rate of that is pushing people more and more towards these more controlled and reliable solutions. And I think that, you know, getting people access to this produce is kind of the key, right? When people start having our strawberries, they're like, oh, well, we get it now, right? And so getting more and more of this infrastructure built, getting more and more access to these things in stores, I think is, uh, is the path that we're on. 
All right, well, that is going to do it for today's episode. Thank you so much to Casey Call for being on the show. Uh, really, really interesting to hear what they're doing at Zordi. You can learn more on their website, which is just Zordi.com. It's Z-O-R-D-I. Of course, I will link that in the show notes as well. Check out their website. If you live near those stores that he mentioned, go support them by buying some of their products at the store and let me know how it goes. I would love to see tags on social media of you buying some Zordi strawberries. And of course, I'm sure uh, Casey would love to hear from you directly on, on LinkedIn or on social media if you'd like to learn more about the work Zordi is doing. Thanks as well to Swap Maps for being our quarterly presenting sponsor this quarter. And last but certainly not least, thank you for your time and your attention. I never, ever, ever take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Mm-hmm.